most all of you know, we believe in teaching the Bible. We preach God's word. We make sure that it's taught, preached, proclaimed, because it is the most important thing that we could possibly do. Today we're continuing a series in Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 21. We will actually finish Acts in the next four or five weeks. And I'm excited about what God has been showing us through the early church. Now today I want to talk to you about opponents and opportunities. We're going to be talking about opponents and opportunities and specifically loving the haters. Loving the haters. Is there a value to having an opponent? I mean, if you're an athlete or have ever been an athlete or ever known an athlete or been on a team, you know that until you actually play someone else, you don't know how good you are, right? Amen, Trey? Can you, can you preach that? All right, thank you so much. Um, you know that until you actually play somebody, you never know how you, and you're actually kind of defined by who you have defeated, right? Opponents really do matter, and they're important, and they're opportunities, Yesterday, James Keller and I competed in a very highly competitive, uh, I think it was covered by ESPN, sailboat race. If you haven't seen it, you maybe get a log and find it anyway. There might have been, uh, well, there were some boats that were racing on the, on the Atlantic Ocean yesterday. And uh, disclaimer, we hadn't raced, we hadn't sailed in over a year because the hurricane damaged the boat and all that kind of stuff. We got out yesterday, and we competed, and everything that we did was under great scrutiny. We were careful about how we set the sails. Every adjustment was so important, even though we're not really that good at it. But it made us better. We're trying to beat some boats, and let's just say we did not finish last. Thank you. Thank you. We might have finished seventh, and there were some boats that finished after us. And we almost caught the fifth place boat, but we didn't. But I'll tell you what, those opponents make you better. They prepare you, uh, they, they cause you to examine everything that you're doing. So opponents actually are opportunities. There's no opponents, you never really work on your craft, you never really get much better. So let me ask you, as we get started today, just think this, what are the opponents in your life? What are the challenges that cause you to get better, that cause you to bring your A game, that get you ready, make you better? Jesus prepared his followers to face opponents. And in case you've never heard this, know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is not always easy. Amen? I mean, we could probably, every one of us could stand up and say, well, I started following Jesus, and I found out that that didn't mean life was going to be perfect and easy. So if you're facing an opponent today, don't think that God's abandoned you. This is exactly what he wants to use in your life to make you more like him and to make Jesus known. Now, for some of you may say, well, that's hurtful to me because I'm going through a really, really hard time. Listen, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Jesus suffered a lot. Paul suffered a lot. Every believer that I've ever known that's walked with Jesus very long has suffered. Don't feel alone. Don't feel singled out. Recognize that Jesus stretched himself out on a cross for our sake to save us, to pay the price that only he could pay. 
Life isn't easy, but the opponents are what make us Christ-like. And that's what Jesus prepared his disciples for. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Phil preached on this last week in preparation of this series. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a stunning statement, really, right? The world doesn't like you because you're associated with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm saving you out of the world, out of the world's system, out of the world's thought patterns, out of the world's power. That's what I'm doing. I'm saving you out of the world. And he said in John 17, he said, I, I want them to be what? To be in the world, but not of the world. I want them to be making a difference in the world, but I don't want them to be like the world. Now, it's important to note here that being hated by the world should be the result because you're a follower of Jesus. It shouldn't be because you're weird. I think Phil shared this last week. Like, what do you mean by weird? I mean, sometimes, do you know a weird Christian? Don't point to anybody. If you need to raise your hand that you're a weird Christian, we'll talk to you afterwards. We have a whole program we can take you through to keep you from being weird. But sometimes believers are just weird, and they just instigate stuff. I, had a, I knew a guy years ago. Uh, he showed up at a church event at another church, and he had a cardboard crown that you get at Burger King. Remember those cardboard crowns? I, I don't know if they give them away because I haven't been to Burger King in about 100 years, but I don't want to offend you if you love Burger King or if you own a Burger King. Burger King's not a bad place. But he showed up with this cardboard crown on. He said, hey, you know what happened to me today? I go, no, what happened? I got fired for wearing this crown. And I told him I couldn't take it off because it represented my King Jesus. I said, you know what I think? I think it represents the fact that you're weird and annoying. And I can understand why they fired you. Maybe that's why they fired you. You don't need to be weird, right? I love it, the verses in the Bible that says that Jesus was not really particularly good looking to look at. He didn't make a big deal of being weird or having looking like Jim Caviezel, you know? Isn't it crazy how all the people who portray Jesus Except for the chosen, they're all just really handsome dudes, right? You think that guy is? Okay, raise your hand. If you think the guy playing Jesus in the chosen is a handsome guy, raise your hand. Any ladies? You think so? Okay, okay coming clean. All right, well, I think all men are ugly, so it doesn't really matter. Um, we've gotten off the rails here, sorry. I've been away, so I just want to just chat. You know, I feel like it's good to be with y'all. We do. I got to tell you, we do miss you. We miss you. We do miss you so much when, when we have to be away, but um, um, don't be weird. Okay, two questions I want us to think about as we consider this issue of opponents being opportunities. There's two questions we need to answer. Why does the world hate Jesus' followers, and how are we to respond? Those two questions. Why does the world hate those who follow Jesus, and how do we respond some of you may be asking, well, does it matter? If people hate me, that's okay. I can just hang out with my Jesus friends, and I don't have to worry about all those people out there. Why don't I just do that? Well, 
Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. He said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're to love the people that don't like us. Now, for some of you, your personality type is you're good with that. But for some other of, of us, we like to be liked. And Jesus said we need to pray for those who don't like us. And then, of course, in the Great Commission, he says, go therefore and make disciples of who? Only the people who like you. Only the people who look like you. Only the people on your economic level. Only the people who are as good looking as you. He says, make disciples of all nations. All kinds of people. It includes the people who don't like you. We're commissioned to reach them. It's our calling to operate in a space where we are actually hated. We have to figure out how in the world are we going to do that. See, opponents provide opportunities. So look with me, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. If you have your Bible, open it. That'd be great. This is a real Bible with pages and everything. But uh, certainly electronic Bibles are fine as well. And um, let's read this first few verses. It says, When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they'd heard that, they glorified God. Now let me pause there. Paul comes to Jerusalem. He's at the end of his third missionary journey. He's been sensing in the spirit that he needs to go to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome, which is the capital of the world, right? It's the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And Jimmy preached about three weeks ago about this deal where his people that loved him, that were spirit-filled, begged him not to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's going to be bad. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. And when Jimmy, Jimmy preached about Agabus, this prophet who came to Paul and wrapped him up in his belt and said, this is what's going to happen to the man who goes to Jerusalem, and it's going to be terrible. And, and Paul makes a statement, I'll paraphrase here. He goes, you're killing me. I will die for Jesus. This is what I'm called to do. This is what people go through who feel called to missions, to leave what's safe and go to what's unsafe. They love Jesus, to go into another place, to share Christ with people who don't like them. The people who are here are going, ah, don't do that, don't do that. They're like, no, this is what I'm called to do. I love that about Paul. And he's not going to be discouraged. He's not going to be deterred. Just because people aren't liking him or aren't going to like him, he's not going to not go. He's going to go where God has sent him. See, Paul loved the haters enough to put his very heart on the line, his very life on the line. He loved the haters enough to put his very life on the line. It's a powerful example, isn't it? He knew what was going to happen. He knew it was going to be bad. He knew there was going to be persecution. But what a Christ-like example when Jesus is coming to earth, do you think he said, oh, those people, it's going to be a great time? 
It's going to be wonderful. Or he didn't say, well, those people are going to be mean to me. They're going to kill me. They're going to make fun of me. He said, no, I'm going anyway. That's why I'm going. See, it's very Christ-like to love the haters, to love the ones who persecute you. And I love how Paul shows up. He doesn't walk in and go, hey, let me give you my resume. Let me show you. You can look on YouTube and see me preaching. Check me out. I'm awesome. Um, He doesn't come in defending himself. What does he do? He comes in glorifying Jesus. This is what Jesus has has done. That's really all we need to share. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he's done. This is what we've seen him do. I just want to give him glory. I love that entrance. You simply share what God has done. Now understand that the people he's talking to, James is the brother of, of, of Jesus. James has, is leading the elders at this point in Jerusalem. Probably the disciples have been chased out of town by now. And the church is under quite a bit of persecution. But there's still thousands of believers. And so he's coming to them. They're Jews mainly who have received the gift of salvation. But they're wondering how they're supposed to live. And is Paul actually teaching what they believe he should be teaching? They need some encouragement. They need some assurance because this movement, this church that has has grown up, they call it the way within Judaism, is kind of, they're trying to figure out and navigate what they're supposed to be doing. Are we still supposed to be Jewish? How's this all going to work? It's kind of like anytime God does something new or reaches someone new or creates a new way of doing church. What does that mean to the old way? What does that mean to the things we're used to? Verse 21, I mean, verse 20, second part says this. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. In other words, these are all people who are keeping the law of Moses, verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our custom. What is to be done? And we pause there. Here's what's happening. They're hearing that Paul is reaching the Gentiles and he is totally throwing out all of the Jewish ceremonial law. And in truth, Paul is stepping away from keeping Gentiles from acting Jewish, but he's not abandoning their law. But they've heard this, that Paul is is totally tossing aside Moses. He said, well, so what? I mean, we're all saved by the same blood of Jesus, right? We're not saved by keeping Jewish ceremonial law. We're, We're not saved by the fact that we're Jewish. We're saved by Jesus, so why does this matter? Well, God made a promise to a people. Remember Abraham's promise of a covenant. A covenant means God's going to keep it even if you don't. So God, even though the Jews have been through so much turmoil, so much struggle, at this point in time, and even in our day, he still has a plan for the Jewish nation. So important for us to understand this. And so what they're worried about is that if they stop teaching Moses, if they stop circumcising their children, they'll no longer be a Jewish nation. And right now in Jerusalem, there is a great desire, as Paul is showing up there, for independence for the Jewish state. 
against the Romans because the Romans are oppressing. Matter of fact, there's going to be an uprising not long after this. The Romans are going to walk in and take everything down, and that's going to kind of be the end of them for quite a while. So that's the fervor. There's some patriotic fervor. There's some nationalistic fervor. And there's also some fear about you're stopping us from our heritage, from who we are. How do we navigate this? Verse verse, uh, 22. What then is to be done? This is James speaking to Paul. They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Have you already lost yet? This is so weird to me, right? Just to be honest. To read this passage, you're going, what are we shaving heads? We have a vow. We're making a sacrifice. I don't understand what's going on. It would be not uncommon, almost normal, for young men in those days to take a vow, and it was probably the Nazarite vow, which for a period of time involves self-denial and special devotion to God, kind of like going on a fast would be today. And it would last for at least 30 days, and one of the things they did is they didn't cut their hair. At the end of the vow, whenever that time frame was up, there would be a purification ceremony. They would offer sacrifices, which were expensive, and we'll get to that in a moment, and they would they would shave their head or cut their hair to indicate the vow is over. So that's kind of what's happening. And James is saying, listen, we got these guys. They're about to finish up their vow. So here's what I want you to do, Paul. We have four men taken under a vow. Um, Take the men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their head. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So Paul wasn't taking a vow himself, but he was going to purify himself. And if you had traveled among Gentiles, it was a normal expectation when you returned to Israel that you would purify yourself. As a matter of fact, today, if you go to the temple area, there are many what we would kind of think like baptistries. There's, there's many places for you to do this purification as you leave the Gentiles. It was a symbol of washing off the world and entering the temple. As a matter of fact, we're going to build some outside so we can hose everybody down before they say, no, we're not really. I want to make sure you're staying with me. It's a little bit hard to understand. Um, so here's what he's saying. Paul, we want you to participate in this vow by paying these guys' expenses, which would have been to pay for them to have these sacrifices. It was like, it was like a lamb. It was like, a, it was like a bird. It was like a whole big thing. It was very expensive to finish this up. They're saying, Paul, participate by paying for their expenses, and you need to be purified anyway, so you participate with them as they go through this purification ritual, and everyone will know that you believe in the ceremonial law of Moses and that you believe that we should still act like Jews. We should still live as a separate, unique people under, under our God. And that's what Paul does. And they say to him, in verse 25, they say, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been offered to I- idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. This happened back in Acts chapter 15. This was what... This was how they should see the law. They were just giving them some guidelines for living. We're not telling the, the Gentiles who have received Jesus that they've got to live like Jews. Um, in verse 36, 26, Then Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them 
and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So, what does this have to do with anything? Here's what's happening. James is saying, listen, Paul, these things don't save anybody, but they do affirm and encourage Jewish people who have received Jesus Christ. It provides some common ground. See, when you're dealing with people who are haters or under the influence of haters or being discouraged by haters, it's great if you can encourage them and find some common ground in them. Things are changing. They're changing fast. How do we know? People are trying to figure out, how are we supposed to live? You know, things have changed a lot in our lifetime for followers of Jesus, haven't they? When I was a kid, you're not going to believe this, some of you. When I was a kid, if you had facial hair and rode a motorcycle, you were going straight to hell. Right? Do you remember this? Surely a believer wouldn't ride a motorcycle and have facial hair. Well, I don't think any of those things have anything to do with spirituality. Do you? But there are things like that in our culture and in our past. People go, oh, can we do this? I don't know if we can do this. Is it okay to do this, you know? I grew up on hymns completely. That's what we sung until who came along? That heathen Bill Gaither. Bill and Gloria Gaither started writing music, contemporary music. It got into the church, and then a whole bunch of other music followed. And people said, well, you've, you've taken away our hymns. And I go, no, not. He wrote because he lives, right? I mean, let's just enjoy that. And people go, well, are you honoring our heritage? Yes, we, we're going to sing a hymn at the end of the service. Find common ground people encouragement it's not going to save them whether they ride a motorcycle have facial hair or sing Gloria Gaither songs it's a good idea to love people enough and encourage them yes this is who you are there's value in your past there's value in hymns and matter of fact there are values to certain lifestyle issues that point to the fact that you're a believer that's what Paul's doing I want to encourage the believers it's not going to make a difference to those who hate him a lot of those who hate him but it is going to help those who are under the the force and under the influence of haters to know that they're going to be okay i love that paul does this i love how he loves on the church in jerusalem but you know one of the reasons that paul is going to be hated here is that he is not making Jewish independence his goal and his main thrust of what he's doing. You see, the people there are like, you don't love our nation enough to make us independent. Paul's going, look, I love Israel. I would love for it to be independent, but it's not as important as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because that cuts across national lines. And sometimes we can get into that same difficulty today regarding our nation. Listen, we have an amazing country we need to defend her because there is evil that wants to tear her down weaken her tear apart the family tear apart the moral structure of our nation tear apart the church limit the church hate the church all that is happening we need to defend against that that's why as a church we hold to what the bible says about family life morality sex between Sex being between one man, one woman, and a committed marriage. That's who we are. That's what we believe. Why? Because that's what God says, but that's also what is very good for our nation. If the church is weak, your family is weak, 
the nations very, very vulnerable. But be assured, the nation and Christianity is not the same thing. The message of Christ will continue long after America is gone. But we do need to honor, celebrate. I encourage you, July 4th, we need to celebrate our country. Thank God for what we have. Thank God for those who have helped us have it, who have defended it. And you need to defend it in the way you live as well. But it's not the same thing as following Jesus. Making the gospel known is the most important thing that we do. And that's what Paul is saying to them. Yes, Israel matters, but Jesus matters more. Yes, I want to fight for Israel to be a nation, but Jesus matters more. Yes, I want America to succeed. I want America to thrive. I want America to be a, a nation that is the greatest sending missionary nation in the world. Yes, I want America to be a nation where religious liberty is real. Yet people are able to follow Jesus. The name of Jesus is way above name. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. One other thing, by the way, we're not Israel, just so you know. Some people get confused. Well, God has abandoned Israel, made America. No, that's not, that's not it at all, theologically. God will be true to his people, Israel. He will use them in the future in amazing ways. So, even though Paul makes this big show, he shows people that he believes in the law of Moses, he believes in, in Israel as a nation, Haters are still going to hate, aren't they? Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, Asia is what we would call the Middle East, really. It's mostly the um, western part of Turkey. It's where Ephesus is. And these are the people that have been a problem for Paul all throughout this journey. And they have come to stir up the people in Jerusalem. Verse 28. And they're crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and his, in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place where they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, let me explain. Here's what's happening. These non-believing, they don't believe Jesus. They're Jews from Asia, from around Ephesus likely. They suppose that because Paul was seen with a companion who was a Greek, Trophimus, that he brought Trophimus into the temple into the part of the temple that is the inner the part of the temple that is only for jews and if you brought a foreigner a gentile in there it would defile that so they assume hey listen paul can say whatever he wants but he's dishonoring our temple and he is um, defiling our temple now paul never defends against this but it doesn't seem like he really did this it's just an assumption they hate him so much that they're going to look for any little thing to destroy him Know this, that when you're dealing with haters, it truth doesn't always matter. They're going to find a way to hurt you. And Paul knows this. He expects this. And so they come get him. They drag him. We're going to kill this man. We're going to drag him away in the, the tribune, which is the Roman contingent there in Jerusalem. Um, they hear about it, and they show up. Verse 32. 
he at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I love that phrase. <laughs> they stopped beating him. Well, they were going to kill him. They stopped beating Paul when the Romans showed up. Understand this. A pagan government saves God's man from God's people. Get that picture in your mind. Pagan government saves God's man from God's people. Then the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That's what Agabus said was going to happen. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts about the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the crowd followed, how, followed him crying, away with him. You know, throughout the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, sorry, this one thing is really true. Those who think they are best hate Jesus' followers the most. The people who think they know God the best, the people who had studied the Old Testament, the Jewish leaders are the ones who hate Jesus the most. Seems like a crazy thing, doesn't it? You think that they would know God and they would know what he would do. But understand this, as the more that we know, sometimes it cuts us off from our hearts to really listen to what God is saying. People who think they are the best hate God's followers the most. I mean, it's true with world religions, right? I mean, every other world religion, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Mormons, any other Jews, any other world religion, what is it all based on? It's based on being able to keep the rules, to meet the standard, to be good enough. That's what it's all about. And they're always going to hate Jesus' followers because to follow Jesus really has nothing to do with being good enough. It has everything to do with what Jesus did for us. That's what it's based on. And if you're someone who is trying to be good enough constantly and you see this group of people who apparently have gotten away with their sin and they never had to make up for it, but they're claiming someone paid for it, that's really offensive to you. See, we should never doubt the level of resistance to repentance. It is so offensive to people who think they are happens in our culture all the time. They look at believers and they say, well, wait a minute. You guys say that this sin is wrong and that sin is wrong. Well, we accept all sinners and we're, we're better than you because you say it is sin. And the response is simply, we say it is sin because there's a payment for sin. Jesus Christ, that's what the Bible says. And we want to love you enough for you to know that. Never underestimate the resistance to repentance. The better people think they are at being good, the less likely they are to repent. The best people always will hate Jesus' followers the most. There's no credit for goodness if you're a follower of Jesus. There's no value in your heritage. There's no value in your parents and your nationality or ethnicity. Your value is in Jesus Christ. Can you receive that? Does that feel okay? 
Or don't you think that maybe I should have some value because of all the good life that I've lived? Where are you today? You see, for recipients of grace, those who have received the gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus dying for me and paying for my sin with his blood, the further we get from that moment, that moment of being born again where we receive that gift, the further we get from that, the harder it is for us not to rely on our resume of goodness. You've been a believer a long time. Eventually we start going, well, you know, I'm a good person. I show up at church. I serve at church. I, I do all kinds of things. I give. And, and we really sit back and we, we sometimes do a self-evaluation and go, well, wait a minute. How good am I? Well, I can just show you my list of good things. And we forget our goodness is based on Jesus Christ. We do live in a way that is reflective of how much he loved us and how much we love him. So we live to serve him and please him, but we're not good because of what we've done. We're good because of what Jesus has done. It's easy to forget that. And if you catch yourself struggling to love the people who hate you, that might be where you are. See, the haters are just those who've not received grace. They've not received the gift of salvation. They're still waking up every morning thinking, I got to be good. I got to be good. I got to get better to feel good about myself. And you go to bed thinking, well, I did 14 good things and one bad thing. I think that's pretty good. I feel good about that because my neighbor, he only did 12 good things and four bad things. And I heard him screaming at his wife, and I didn't do that today. So. called to love the haters. Opponents are opportunities to make Jesus known. Are you in that place when you can love the haters? Because you were a hater at one time. You were far from God at one time. See, we're called to love those who are far from him. And those who are far from him, no matter what they say, they don't like you. They don't like the fact that you can feel good about yourself because of Jesus. They want you to be a slave to goodness. This morning, where are you? I want to encourage you to come back to that place of back to that place when Jesus Christ saved your soul. Remember that. And repent of the pride that invariably seeps in as we glorify ourselves by looking at our spiritual resume. Trade that. Say, Jesus, would you forgive me of that pride? Because I'm just so glad what you did for me. That's what he calls us to do. Heavenly Father, we admit, God, we want credit for our good stuff. We just do. But Lord, we want you more. And we lay down these idols, we lay down these things that we value so much, and the good deeds that we've done, we trade that 
the price you paid for us. We repent of our sin of pride. God, we repent of our sin of hating those who are far from you, Lord. Help us to show up, even though people may not like us, to show up making known what you have done and bringing glory to you, to those who've never heard it or understood it. Oh, God, for those today who would say, I, I don't think I've ever really received that gift of salvation. I still uh, have always lived trying to be good and trying to look good. Lord, oh, convict their hearts. They're never going to get there. Our lives will be lived honoring you, Jesus, because of what you've done. We praise you, Jesus, for saving us. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, O oh, the Father of sin, I Jesus, 
worship and adore you. Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. Come on, let's tell them together. Sing, I love you. Oh, sing, I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you. Lord, I love you more than anything. Sing, I love you, Jesus. We say, I love you, Jesus. And I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. Time. I worship and adore you, just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. Amen. It's been great to be in worship with you today. If you're new and you've got a card, meet us out at the tent out there. we got a gift for you. So glad that you're here today. That's your ticket to getting involved here at First Baptist Church of Delray Beach. Um, it's a great joy to be with you in worship. If you have questions, you're saying, Steve, I have a hard time loving somebody. I have a hater I just can't love. Or maybe you have a hard time with someone else that you, maybe you're kind of hating them. Let's deal with that. Or maybe if you've never received the good news of Jesus, I would love to help you on that journey. So good to be back with you today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We love you, Jesus. It's incredible that we get to know you, that your spirit lives through us and it is among us as brothers and sisters, Lord. God, I pray for this congregation as we go out into the week, as we celebrate our incredible nation that you've given us the privilege to be a part of. Lord, would you protect her as we seek to defend her? May your name, Jesus, be made great this week through this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.